Hi, and welcome to the eFundamentals Digital Shelfcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping growth-driven CPGs win online. My name is Julia Glotz, and I'll be your host for the show. Every episode, I'll be speaking with industry experts about the latest trends and challenges in digital commerce and how you can drive growth online. We've packed each show with practical insight you can apply straight away to keep you ahead. So make sure you subscribe today and don't miss out on any of our thought-provoking episodes. We're available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for spending time with me today. And now let's jump straight into your monthly dose of e-commerce growth inspiration. Hello, and welcome to the Digital Shelfcast. Thank you for joining us. For a food brand, it's really no longer about who has the biggest factory or who has the biggest media budget. It's about what data you have and how you use it. That's according to Taylor Smith, partner at Boston Consulting Group, who was quoted in a recent Bloomberg article on big food and big data. It's a provocative statement, but one that's worth taking seriously. The boom in online grocery we've seen as a result of the pandemic has catapulted data to the top of the agenda. It's shown food brands just how important it is to be able to analyze shopper behavior and to proactively use data analytics to measure and optimize digital shelf performance. Knowing how to optimize your performance across key retailers and emerging marketplaces like Instacart or GoPuff is becoming a real competitive advantage as is the ability to look at the broader picture and understand how shopper journeys are changing. So it's a no-brainer. If you want to thrive in the post-pandemic world, you need to get serious about data. Well, that's the theory, at least. In practice, many large CPGs are still being rather sluggish when it comes to how they approach data. So why is that? And what's it going to take to change it? And what are the key trends in US e-commerce that are driving the need for big food to get serious about big data? To help us explore these questions, we're joined on the show by Jason Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publicis Group and a fellow podcaster at Retail Geek, a popular e-commerce podcast. Jason is also a fourth generation retailer, which means he's had a front row seat to digital disruption in retail. He's a regular contributor to Forbes and serves on the board of directors of shop.org, the digital retail arm of the National Retail Federation. In other words, he is the perfect guest to help us answer our questions about big data. Jason, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Hello. Oh my gosh, Julia, I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you for using that whole lovely introduction that my mom wrote. That was kind. <laughs> You're very welcome. And please send, send our regards to her as well. Now, before we open up the discussion, we do love to quiz our guests on their own online shopping habits. So take us behind the scenes of the Goldberg household. Tell us about the last item you bought online and where you bought it and what that experience was like. Oh gosh, probably not shocking to listeners, I am a pretty frequent e-commerce user, and I'm somewhat well-known for my excessive consumption of iced coffee. So I imagine the honest answer to your question is something boring like a voluminous amount of iced coffee, uh, which is a you know auto-replenishment order, so like no user experience required, which is awesome. I guess the more out-of-the-ordinary purchase I've made recently that was kind of fun is we're planning a family holiday. We rent a a fun uh, house on uh, the lake uh, in Lake Michigan here in the Midwest in the United States. And uh, I have a several-year-old drone, so I decided to have some fun with my my son and uh, upgrade to a modern drone. So we, we bought a drone this week. Fantastic. And where did you buy your drone from? I actually bought it from the manufacturer, which a company called DJI, and they had an interesting program. They accepted a trade-in for my outdated drone. So that was a a wise program because that, like, I probably would have purchased it from Amazon or someone that could have promised more expedient delivery were it not for the credit I could earn by sending, sending DJI my old drone. Huh. Very interesting indeed. Now let's set the scene for our listeners with some key facts and figures. Just give us a sense of how big is e-commerce grocery in the US right now? 
in terms of scale and, and growth rates? Yeah. Uh, so the unhelpful answer for a podcast is the truth is nobody knows. Uh, there, there is not good, reliable data nor a uniform definition of e-commerce grocery. So, for example, like what's the definition of a grocer? Does it include beverage retailers like Bebmo and Total Wine? Does it include Walmart, which is 60% grocery, but is a mass merchant, Target, uh, folks like that? So, I'm going to give you an answer, but I just want to put out there that there's a great deal of uncertainty and certainly no official answer. But the U.S. Department of Commerce publishes data on retail every month, and they just published the May data. And according to them, there were $74 billion of food and beverage sales in the U.S. last month. And a good estimate is about 10% of that was e-commerce. So that gives you about a $90 billion a year run rate. Some of the the analysts, like eMarketer, think that we're at about $112 billion a year run rate. And then uh, I've seen some survey-based estimates from like uh, Mercatus that are at like 132 billion run rate. So I think that's the range, 90 to 130 billion. Interesting. I, I, I really liked what you were saying that actually about some of the uncertainty around the market size, particularly when we're looking at e-commerce grocery. When you are working with clients specifically in grocery that are trying to understand what's happening in that market, what data sources, what sort of figures do you find are most helpful to kind of make sense of, of the scale of the market? Yeah, well, it's tricky because if, if uh, you're trying to persuade a client and you're not super persnickety about your intellectual integrity, you probably, there, there's so many different numbers out there. You can find a number that makes that client feel persuaded that, that it should be important. But obviously, I'm, I'm saying that partly tongue in cheek. Rather than benchmarking yourselves against a competitor based on some some sort of fuzzy math. What I propose is using observed data from your own customer base, right? And so I look for those kind of signals when I'm working with a, a retailer that's predominantly brick and mortar. I'm looking for evidence like just how much traffic do they get to their grocery site? Like what, what sort of trends are we seeing in search terms on Google? Um, there's a lot of um, observed behaviors that we can collect reliable, tangible data on that, that show us the increased demand for, for digital grocery. Got it. When we're thinking about the online grocery landscape in the US versus other countries, what would you say is unique about e-commerce grocery in the US? And what are some of the challenges that potentially creates for CPGs? Yeah, well, our geography and the population density is somewhat unique. So historically, before the pandemic, where you live, the UK was considered one of the most progressive digital grocery markets. Uh, South Korea is another example of a historically well-penetrated digital grocery market, and the US far less so. And part of the reason for that is because, in general, we have a lot more land and therefore a lot less population density. So I know... Most Americans that, you know, wealthy Americans that live on a coast think of America as Manhattan. And I, I know most most uh, foreigners would certainly think of America as Manhattan as well. But it's America is really Missoula, Montana. And people just don't live close enough together to cost effectively deliver groceries to their homes in Missoula, Montana. And so, you know, the unit economics are quite challenging. Also, for a variety of interesting reasons, Americans are used to bigger grocery stores with a broader selection, and that also works against the unit economics of digital grocery. So historically, we've been sort of a slow adopter of, of digital grocery. Obviously, the pandemic was an accelerator everywhere, but I think disproportionately, it really lit a fire under digital grocery here in the U.S., yeah. And how has the U.S. grocery market adapted or coped with some of the challenges? Because some of what you've outlined in terms of making the economics stack up, given the, the scale of the country and the geography, those haven't necessarily changed that dramatically. How, how do you square that circle? Yeah. Well, so before the pandemic, there was kind of a bifurcation. There were big national grocers that had a lot of resources and they were all investing in digital grocery, not because they 
saw an, an immediate return on that investment or they were able to achieve a favorable ROI. They were terrified of being disrupted by a digitally native challenger, right? So, oh my gosh, Amazon bought a chain of grocery stores, Whole Foods. We, we, you know, they've, they've been uh, the destroyer of worlds for so many other categories. We, we can't allow them to steal our grocery customer, right? So if you're Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons, you were making a lot of digital investments, even though in the short run, they didn't look like very economically favorable. About 25% of the U.S. grocery market are independent retailers, and they simply didn't invest in digital, right? They simply said, oh my gosh, less than 2% of sales are digital. It doesn't make sense. Those big grocers are being foolish by wasting their money. Thank goodness. And so then the pandemic hit, and suddenly everybody needed to sell groceries online and enable curbside pickup. So that was one of several factors that gave the big national chains, a huge advantage over the small independent grocers. And so the big national chains did quite well. There was more demand for groceries than ever. Before the pandemic, consumers got about 50% of their calories from grocery stores and 50% of their calories from restaurants. At the peak of the pandemic, we were getting 70% of our calories from grocery stores. So that's $20 billion a month in extra spending at grocery stores. And that disproportionately went to Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons at the expense of these these small independent grocers. So, you know, those pre-investments that grocers made ended up working out really well. One big retailer in the U.S., Target, had bought them sort of a last mile company about a year before the pandemic, and that ended up being the greatest investment of all times because they were able to very efficiently do curbside pickup and last mile delivery with their own endemic fleet at Shipped, uh, that was called for Target. So that's sort of how the big guys played out. What the little guys did is they either just really suffered or they outsourced digital grocery to a third party. And here in the U.S., we have a large digital grocery marketplace called Instacart. Mm -hmm. And so if you didn't already have your own digital infrastructure, your only choice in the pandemic was to pay Instacart to provide a digital infrastructure for you. And so I would argue in the grocery space, no one was a bigger winner than Instacart because they got all the business from these digital laggards. And when I introduced you earlier, I described you as a fourth generation retailer and someone who's obviously looked at this market and, and seen how it's been disrupted by digital for, for quite some time. What's been the biggest eye-opener for you during the pandemic and this massive shift to online grocery? What's taken you by surprise? I guess a couple of things. The unit economics of digital grocery are quite challenging, right? Grocery is a very challenging business, very low margins anyway. And when people traditionally shop for groceries, they provide the labor to pick the groceries. They walk around the store and, and grab their own bananas, and then they provide the labor to take them home. They drive them home. And consumers haven't shown a willingness to pay for either of those services. So when they order groceries digitally, they expect Kroger to pick the groceries off the shelf and Kroger to deliver them to their home at price parity with the, the self-service option before. And so before the pandemic, we all had hypotheses about how that could be economically viable, that scale would help. And if we could replace the pickers with robots, automated fulfillment, what we call micro-fulfillment centers, that that's very promising. And I had learned from some of my pre-pandemic work that customers are quite enamored with curbside pickup for grocery. And so that saves us a lot of the delivery cost if we can get a family to stop on their way home from soccer practice and pick up their groceries. And sorry, Julia, soccer is a football. Um, <laughs> Noted. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of pre-pandemic had this hypothesis that, eh, you know, the, the unit economics things are kind of overrated and they'll all get solved. And I would say now that we've poured fire on demand and dramatically increased our volume, it's it's been more difficult to make those sales profitable than I expected. And the, the micro-fulfillment centers in particular have a lot of promise, but also a lot of extra complication and friction that are margin eroding. So I, like, I guess I'm... I still hold some hope for that solution, but I'm I'm less certain that that is part of the the solution. So that's my big picture surprise. And then mm. the other super interesting thing that people aren't talking about is when you shop for groceries digitally, your behavior fundamentally changes and it's very disruptive to the status quo. So 
We, in general, don't put unhealthy, guilty pleasures on our shopping list, right? So very few people ever wrote chewing gum on a shopping mm -hmm. list. My family does this proudly, but many families wouldn't put, <laughs> like, Oreo cookies on their shopping list. So the classic um, kind of impulse purchases. Yeah. And yeah. then, of course, so many products are discovered by seeing them in store and unplanned purchases. Well, when you order digitally... You don't see any other products in the store. You don't walk by the ice cream on the way to the healthy produce. And so a lot of those purchase behaviors that we've come to rely on in a traditional grocery shopping experience aren't happening or we need to invent new ways for them to happen in this, this new digital reality. Yeah. And I think that challenge that you just outlined around NPD, you know, activating new launches in particular, encouraging product discovery. I think that's a, it's obviously a massive challenge that all e-commerce markets are, are struggling with, trying to, to find solutions to. Are you seeing anything that you think is promising in terms of making that happen and encouraging product discovery in a sort of online environment? Yeah, well, I think sort of the premise of the show, like one of the obvious solutions is to use data to remind customers of other products that they might discover. So literally have a digital equivalent to that serendipitous discovery in the store. In grocery, we often would call that a top-off experience. Like you bought all this, you should consider this before you check out. Allegedly, about 35% of all Amazon sales are those product recommendation tiles. So we can certainly use data to get better at those top-off experiences while you're building your cart. But I'm almost more excited about the other touch points in the experience where we can add to your cart. So originally, we were just desperate to have curbside pickup at all, right? And often it was rolled out in a, an impressively ad hoc way. But now that it's become a high volume and important part of the shopping experience, a lot of grocers are hardening that experience. And what that means is maybe we move some impulse items out to that curbside. So maybe we're installing coolers curbside. And whereas we used to sell a single can of cold Coca-Cola to the shopper to drink on our way home at the cash wrap, now maybe we do that at the curbside and give her an opportunity to add products to her cart and merchandise products out in that pickup location. Also, a lot of what we used to do is in-store sampling. If you don't go in the store, you don't do the samples. Also, there's some hygiene safety issues around mm. samples that's still, still lingering. So an interesting thing that has emerged is in-bag sampling. And what's interesting about that is, whereas in the store, I kind of had to offer the same sample to every customer. In your bag, I can use data about your shopping habits to make very informed decisions about what products you might be interested in and then put samples in your bag. And I can make it very low friction once you've tried that sample to add it to your reoccurring list for your next order. Got it. Now, you've already very nicely brought us back to data. So I want to just take you back for a second to that Taylor Smith quote we had right at the start of our episode. For a food brand, it's really no longer about who has the biggest factory or who has the biggest media budget. It's about what data you have and how you use it. What do you make of that? Or do you agree with that sentiment? Let's perhaps start with that. Sure. I may be contractually obligated not to agree with anything from Boston <laughs> Consulting Group, but I'm going to make a career-limiting move and say that I do agree with that. In general, slight caveat, it's not that your factory or your marketing efforts aren't still valuable, they're no longer a competitive advantage, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, the evolution of every industry. What got us here is not going to get us there, right? Like there, there was an era where you could win by having production and production was very hard to acquire. And so if a big incumbent, you know, had a disproportionate advantage to, to bulk up on production or a big CPG had a big advantage to bulk up on marketing, they could use that as a competitive advantage. Today, technology and digital have really democratized a lot of those things. Like you or I could start a food brand tomorrow and have easy access to production. You know, a little controversial right at the moment, but in general, we could use digital marketing to reach an initial audience very cost effectively. And so what is now differentiating the winners from the losers is their ability to be contextually relevant to their target customer. And the primary input we need to create that contextual relevancy is data. And as a result of the boom in online shopping that we've seen, there is a lot more data that brands potentially have to work with than, than they might have had in the past. We're also, however, still hearing that quite a few brands don't 
know how to make best use of this data. In your experience, why is that? What do they struggle to get to grips with? Yeah, well, a few things. So first of all, I think innovators' dilemma is very real, that, you know, every one of these companies became large and quite successful by leaning into certain philosophies and competitive advantages. And it's it's against our human nature and extraordinarily difficult to sort of walk away from those things that worked and embrace something new that's less proven. And so, you know, if you always won based on scale or always won based on marketing reach, it's extraordinarily difficult to say, you know what, we should stop listening to that smart supply chain guy and instead we should just trust this data we're getting from the consumer. Also, in the case of the manufacturer, there, while there is a lot of data floating around, the actual product manufacturers, I would argue, have a lack of data because an inconvenient truth about those businesses is they're B2B businesses that don't talk to consumers, mm-hmm. right? So if, you know, Procter & Gamble does not think of Julia as a customer. They think of Walmart as a customer, right? And the data Procter & Gamble gets is from Walmart. So when Procter & Gamble wants to invent a new product to sell at grocery stores, they're mostly taking data from their B2B customers, and maybe they hire 40 Julias in a focus group to talk to for an hour, right? And then they try to invent a new product. And not to pick on P&G because this is true of almost every CPG, but do you know how many billion-dollar brands Procter & Gamble has invented in the last five years using that, that model? Zero. I'm I know the answer, yeah. Yeah, it's zero. And so you say to them, like, oh, yeah, that's because there are these evil new digitally native brands and these up-and-coming challengers that don't have all of our innovators' dilemma, and they're crushing us in the marketplace. And certainly if you listen to talking heads like me, you would think that's true. Do you know how many D2C brands sell a billion dollars a year? Zero. Mm. Like Warby Parker, Casper, and certainly none of the the CPG food DTCs, Dollar Shave Club, sell a billion dollars a year. Do you know who's invented a bunch of billion-dollar brands in the last two years? Target. Here in the United States, Target's launched 10 brands in the last five years that all sell over a billion dollars a year. And you go, huh, what is different for Target than for Procter & Gamble or Dollar Shave Club? And the answer is... Target talks to 90 million American households every month, <laughs> right? And they, they have a direct relationship with the consumer or the guest, as they call her, and they get to use that relationship to inform the products they make. And so they see not just what you buy, but they see all the efforts you made to buy something that were unsuccessful. What searches did you type into Target that yielded no results or didn't result in a conversion? And they're able to use that data to create products that are not copies of the national brand's products, but fill gaps that the national brand missed. And so to me, this is an example of data-driven product development. And retailers, because they own the relationship with the customer, have the most valuable consumer data. And we're, we're seeing this almost universally. Kroger has the best-selling organic food brand in the world, Simple Truth. If you go to China, you won't have heard of Kroger because there are no Kroger grocery stores in China. But guess what you can buy on Tmall? Simple Truth. Kroger's a product brand in China. Their global expansion strategy is product, not retail. One of the most successful retailers in the U.S., Costco, they have an owned brand called Kirkland. Kirkland is a $30 billion a year brand, right? It's phenomenal. Target launched Good and Gather as a food brand that's already a $2 billion brand. And of course, you know, most notably, those evil, clever bastards at Amazon, you know, are, are, you know, reportedly using a lot of customer data to invent products to replace the national brands. I, I mean, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I guess if I'm a brand listening to this, this is all quite terrifying, isn't it? How do I get to start bridging that gap or at least narrow the gap perhaps a little bit if I want to get more serious about data, if I want to get smarter about product development and really understanding where those gaps in the market might be, what are some of the areas I should focus on, you know, be it search, be it social commerce insights? What, what would an action plan look like? 
Yeah. Well, so there are there is low-hanging fruit, like you referenced one. One of the most important attributes to online shopping are ratings and reviews. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I would argue that ratings and reviews are still wildly underutilized as a consumer signal, but you can learn a ton, not so much in the food space, but in other spaces. There are multi-billion dollar brands that exist on Amazon just by reading ratings and reviews, seeing what customers are dissatisfied with and making new products, right? Like that's Anchor on Amazon, for example, in the computer accessory space. So I certainly would scrape that. I certainly would be implementing social listening to understand where my consumers are at. But the big thing is you need to have customer intimacy. You have to have some reason to have a direct relationship with the customer. So the most obvious example in the the strategy that's being most deployed is some flavor of direct-to-consumer. Like, mm-hmm. we need to be selling stuff direct. If every retailer is trying to become a brand, then what's the response? Every brand's trying to become a retailer, right? And so, depending on your product category, maybe you have a high-margin, cost-effective product to ship, and so then maybe you stand up a website and sell it, you know, direct in competition with the, the wholesalers. But assuming a lot of food products and CPG brands... The unit economics are quite challenging. It's very difficult to sell individual bags of chips, you know, online, for example. You might do something like sell custom products online. M&Ms and Oreos, for example, have have custom products that you can buy online. Or maybe you sell a subscription service online. Or you find some other way to create customer intimacy. To me, the marquee example is something that's not even about sales. It's uh, Nike... Plus, it's an affinity program, a membership program for Nike enthusiasts that Nike uses to create much more interactions with their consumer than they would ever have by just selling shoes. And they've been able to use the data from that program to become, you know, very successfully transitioned from a wholesaler to a direct-to-consumer company. That's really interesting. Is there anyone in food or in the sort of CPG space that you think is perhaps operating on slightly similar instincts. I mean, you you know, you cited some of the sort of D2C models that are being operated. And I'm thinking about, you know, someone like Coca-Cola, for instance, looking at that their subscription program where they're sort of launching new flavors or giving consumers an opportunity to try new flavors or limited edition flavors before anyone else. Are those instincts the, the right kinds of instincts? Is that what's going to be helpful or, or what direction yeah, do you think would I'll- work for food? Every food brand in America has had the platform meeting, right? And what is our platform? How can we engage, you know, some or all of our customers and get more of that intimacy so that we can ultimately start using that data to inform the products we invent, which is super important, and also, you know, to inform the the shopping experience we deliver? How can we use that data to reduce friction and make it easier for people to buy our stuff? Mm. You've already touched on the fact that obviously the unit economics can be quite challenging indeed to see customer acquisition costs, you know, real, real barrier as well. How should CPGs think about a channel like that? Is that purely about acquisition of data? It's about getting shopper insights or does that channel need to be economically viable in and of itself as well? Yeah, well, it's a mix. It's an important tactic and the cost of acquisition for the first I don't know, pick a, pick a number, 100,000 eyeballs is much lower than the cost of acquisition for the 10 millionth eyeball. And mm-hmm. so there's some amount of eyeballs that you absolutely should be renting from these channels. The problem is when that's your exclusive go-to-market strategy, it becomes limiting, right? And that's why all these D2C companies plateau. Like there, there's a certain amount of eyeballs they can buy cost effectively and they have this wonderful hockey stick of growth from zero to $100 million. And then they tend to be stuck at $100 million, right? And then they do one of three things. They spend foolishly to buy more eyeballs, right? So they suddenly become wildly unprofitable because they, they have to buy, you know, worse CPA eyeballs from, from the same channels they've been buying them from. They get acquired, um, right? So they, you know, try to monetize their growth so far and they sell themselves to Unilever, which would, you know, be like the Dar Shave Club model, mm-hmm. for example. Or they transition to a broader portfolio of customer acquisition strategies. And so most notably for many of these D2Cs, that next thing they do is this thing we've talked about in the past called retail. 
<laughs> right? Um, so you think of, you know, Casper, like, you know, got to a certain size. Now they're opening stores. Warby Parker's opening a bunch of stores. Harry's, you know, is distributing through Target. Like, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more of these mature, plateaued, digitally native brands increasingly partner with traditional brick and mortar because it turns out that store model is a good way to cost-effectively reach a lot of eyeballs at scale. I want to change tack a little bit and just talk about something that I thought was really interesting on your Retail Geek YouTube channel. Fantastic channel, really worth checking out. You, in one of the videos, talk about how you're not a fan of keeping track of what percentage of retail sales are e-commerce. You think this is an increasingly irrelevant metric, which may sound counterintuitive given what we've just been talking about. You talk about this idea of looking at digitally influenced sales. Just explain to our listeners what the difference is and why you think that matters to brands. Sure, sure. So if there were $74 billion worth of grocery sales last year and 10% of that was online and you're the VP of e-commerce for a food brand, then you're, you're talking a lot about our we're 10% of the market. E-commerce is 10% of the market. Well, I started out the show by saying, we don't really know. Like, I made up that 10% number because there's no way to measure, and everyone counts differently, right? And oh, by the way, most of this is omni-channel fulfillment. In grocery, in the U.S., very little fulfillment comes from centralized distribution. It's coming from stores. And so... In the case of Amazon, when you walk into a Whole Foods and buy something, credit for that sale goes to Whole Foods. But when you go to WholeFoods.com and order something for home delivery, credit for the sale goes to Amazon and not Whole Foods. So Whole Foods is the one large-scale grocer in America whose revenue went down in the last year, (laughs) right? And it just went down because that's how Amazon chose to do attribution. Kroger has central distribution and store distribution. So if it gets delivered from a Ocado shed, it's probably an e-commerce order. If that banana came from a Kroger shelf, that might be a store sale. All these independents are selling through Instacart. That's a digital sale, and Instacart's recording it as a digital sale. But you actually sold a banana at your cash register, and you're recording that as an in-store sale. So the number is just wrong to start out with. But even if we could wave a magic wand and know what the real number is and we could all agree on the definition of what grocery is and the definition of what e-commerce is, I would still argue it's not very useful because it's, it's mostly irrelevant. Customers have a bunch of needs and they use a bunch of tools to fulfill those needs. In the, the distant past, they bundled most of the shopping experience into a single occasion. So I needed some calories, I'd go to the grocery store. I'd become aware of brands that are interesting at the grocery store when I saw them on the shelf. Then I would conduct some consideration. And then I would choose to purchase some and I would get fulfillment. And all those things out of necessity had to happen at the same moment in time at the same place. Procter & Gamble came up with a cool name for it. It's the first moment of truth, right? But in digital... You don't have to do all those things at the same time. And the shopping journey is now is fragmented into thousands of touch points. Maybe you realize you're out of peanut butter when you're driving your kids home from soccer practice and they're screaming and you suddenly realize you don't have the ingredients to make school lunch for tomorrow right? And maybe consideration is you see some uh, funny dude drinking ocean spray on a skateboard on TikTok, right? And maybe you add that to your fresh direct cart for delivery next week, or maybe you you remember to buy it in a store. But all of these things are, are fragmented across all these points, and they all contributed to you making the sale. So if you're only counting the last place they buy the product as the 100% of the credit for the sale, you're wildly misattributing most of your efforts, right? And so I'm much more interested in this statistic that I call digitally influenced sales. So, hey, I need to go grocery shopping. I can't remember if Whole Foods opens at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. Let's go to Google Maps. Hey, I read about this cool new keto-friendly breakfast sandwich. Let's use Google to see what store has it uh, near me. Oh, gosh, is that gluten-free? Let's go to the manufacturer's website and check. Am I really going to like that? Let's go to Amazon and read a bunch of ratings and reviews. And then after all of that, I ultimately give the sale to Whole Foods. Well, that's a store sale, but it was overwhelmingly influenced by all these digital touch points that I just used to make that sale. And so... 
you know, before the pandemic, across all consumer categories, e-commerce was about 13% of sales in the U.S., but another 34% of sales were digitally influenced. So the majority of all sales in the U.S., $5.6 trillion a year worth of spending, were digitally influenced before the pandemic. And then e-commerce went from 13 to 17%. So if you're just looking at that number, you'd go... That's kind of a snoozer, right? Like that, mm. we we leapt forward a year into the future. Uh, <laughs> that's like it's relevant, but it's it's not a huge number. But that digitally influenced number probably leapt forward another fifteen percent, right? So suddenly, 70 percent of all purchases in the U.S. are digitally influenced. If you're the TikTok manager for a food brand, you're having a huge impact on purchase decisions. But that's not being counted when you just look at e-commerce sales. Yeah. And is that partly because of mindset? So brands are just not thinking about those wider touch points or is there, are there challenges around actually attributing and tracking which digital touch points a consumer might have touched as before they actually make the purchase? Because you are increasing complexity potentially quite a bit, aren't you, in, in terms of sort of understanding where your sales are coming from, if you're now keeping track of all of these other touch points as well. Yeah, well, typical consulting answer, it's not or, it's and, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it's both. It, it both is our legacy habits are very hard to break. And, you know, that's always a fundamental challenge that incumbents have against these disruptors. I would argue, you know, Amazon's highest level management principle that has served them phenomenally well is this it's always day one at Amazon philosophy where they try to overcome some of that legacy inertia that that companies tend to grow, all these antibodies that form to attack change. But it also is harder to do the math per your point, right? And so like, you know, of course, we're hardwired to go to the path of least resistance. And if it's harder to do that math, and we have some inertia keeping us from adopting these new metrics, it's totally understandable that we're slow to move in that. But once we see a challenger that doesn't have all of those challenges and are starting counting on a very small base, so the math is easier, start to benefit from that, you know, there eventually gets a tipping point where there's a survival imperative to pivot to these more robust attribution models. And yeah. I, to be honest, even digitally influenced sales to me is an intermediate metric. Like I'm trying to convert a lot of companies that are used to last click or last touch to think about digitally influenced sales. But where I really want them to get is to customer lifetime value metrics, right? And I just know if I, you know, go to some of these legacy companies and say, throw out all the math you're familiar with and learn some much more difficult math that relies a lot more on data that you don't always have, that that's a chasm too far to jump. So the, yeah. so to me, the, the multi-touch attribution like digitally influenced sales is a kind of appropriate intermediary step. And which brands get this? Who impresses you in, in the CPG space for how they approach attribution and how they make sense of digitally influenced sales? Are there any good examples that are worth looking at? Yeah, so it, it's tricky because these big CPG brands didn't get big by being dumb. And they listen to far smarter people than me. And then occasionally they're accidentally forced to overhear something that I've said as well. So I don't have any advice that they haven't heard. So they've become extremely adept at talking about all these things, right? And the rational part of their brain recognizes that that is their future. And, you know, you'll hear it in their board presentations and in their investor presentations and things like that. It turns out it's it's harder to pivot the whole enterprise to that new talking point than it is to just talk about it, right? So I would argue most of the incumbent brands have made the leap to talking about this more enlightened way of thinking about things, but they haven't actually done the hard work to fully change the organization, right? And, you know, I think a CEO for a multi-billion dollar brand once told me, like, Jason, you've got to understand this isn't a speedboat I'm driving. It's a battleship, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it's a aircraft carrier and it takes a long time to turn. And I joked back at him, like, I've got bad news for you. You are not driving an aircraft carrier. You're driving an armada of rowboats. <laughs> uh, so it's not even the case that they're all guaranteed to point in the same direction, right? Yeah. Like, so, you know, again, their historic advantages are now a disadvantage. So who, who do I think is best at this? Like it is some of the more digitally native brands that have moved to this faster. I would say in general, retailers are better at it than brands because 
the inheriting the direct-to-consumer relationship and the consumer data is super valuable. If you're Walmart, you have more data than you could possibly use, right? So the fact that the pandemic increased your amount of data is probably not all that helpful, right? Like at Walmart, the fundamental problem is how do I best act on all this data? But if you're Procter & Gamble, you don't have as much data as you would like, and you still are having to solve the data problem. And in general, while you're sitting around talking about the data problem, it's getting worse because the gods on Mount Olympus of Google, Facebook, and uh, Apple are fighting over you know, privacy laws that are taking away some of the data tools that you did have. Absolutely. Now, there was another interesting point that you raised in one of your videos, actually, that I, I wanted to ask you about. You talk about a concept called absolute value, which is about how shoppers make decisions about the quality of a product. Just quickly talk us through what that concept is. And again, perhaps spell out how it relates to how CPGs might want to look at data. Yeah. So this goes back to me to the sort of decoupling of the shopping experience. And basically, absolute value is kind of an academic term, which makes sense because it was invented by a professor at Stanford. The notion is that originally one of the main purposes of a brand was to convey quality to a consumer. If you can't judge the quality of something for yourself, the next best thing is associating a brand with quality. So none of us can look at a sunscreen and know whether it's effective or not, but Coppertone sure does have cute ads. Like, they're probably high quality, right? None of us know if the flower in the sealed barrel is rancid, but King Arthur flower seems very reputable and their logo's on the outside of the barrel, so it must be fresh. So we use brand as a shortcut for quality. And that was super important. And the companies that built the best brands like King Arthur and Coppertone had a, you know, a very strong moat and a fundamental advantage. As the shopping experience gets decoupled and it becomes easier to know for a fact the quality of the product, that brand association becomes less, less important. I spent a lot of my career at Best Buy. We tried to sell TVs and people buy TVs based on brands. You actually voted with your feet. Right, You were a Samsung person, so you turn left, or you were a Sony person, so you turn right, and you had a perception that Samsung or Sony was the best quality TV. Today, when you walk into Best Buy, you're pretty sure those Samsung and Sony TVs are made at the same factory in China. Right, and the logo is just getting slapped mm. on them. And the way you find out the good one from the bad one is the geek in your circle of friends told you that a particular model from Samsung is the best value, right? Or you read ratings and reviews, or you have easy access via the supercomputer in your pocket to determine what a really good TV is. So you no longer care what that logo is. And that manifests itself in the fact that five years after they were born, the best-selling TV in America was Vizio. An unknown brand that won based on these objective quality and value metrics that people were able to learn about on the internet. If I got in a time machine and went back 10 years and said Coca-Cola would no longer be a valuable brand and it would be easy for new you know, sodas to usurp Coke, you would have said impossible. But if I said the same thing about Sony, you would have said impossible. And yet... Mm. The benefit of their brand, while still having value, the overall benefit has eroded because people now can use objective data to learn about products. And so that that's the basic definition of absolute value, is that once it becomes easy to judge quality, often through this digital transparency, brand is less influential in your overall purchase decision, and you tend to shop based on quality more. And so when we look at a lot of the best-selling products on Amazon, they don't tend to be the historic incumbents, and they tend to be challenger brands that emerged by leveraging this absolute value that like by, you know, getting good ratings and reviews and getting good social word of mouth and user generated content saying they're good rather than paying my employer Publicis a fortune to make beautiful TV commercials to improve your brand reputation. And so if we're sort of drawing a line from that to what a CPG might want to do with their data strategy, it's about a understanding how shopper decisions, buying decisions are being influenced, you know, looking at ratings and, and reviews, but also using data to really understand what product attributes potentially drive purchasing decisions. How do you translate that insight about absolute value and the diminishing importance of brands into what you might want to do with your data strategy? 
Yeah. So proactive and reactive, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Reactive, you should create more data that illustrates the quality of your existing products, right? So the most manufacturers hated the fact that they had to collect ratings and reviews. And in fact, I've sat in the room with most manufacturers when they said, we're absolutely not doing that because you know what? People will say mean things about us in the reviews. <laughs> or they've said, all right, we'll collect ratings and reviews, but we're going to delete all the ones that aren't five-star, <laughs> right? Like literally. And they only did it because Walmart said, if you don't syndicate, collect reviews and syndicate them to us, we're not going to try to sell your new products, right? So it was a necessary evil that the retailer insisted on getting some reviews for new product. The retailers are all looking for help from the brands because Amazon was collecting a bunch of reviews and no one else was. And so they said, you have to do that, right? So that job of collecting reviews got assigned to the intern because it only affected the 2% of the brand sales that happen on walmart.com. And the super important team at the brand that was responsible for the 98% of sales that happen in Walmart stores could care less about reviews, right? But of course, all those people standing in a Walmart store are on their phone reading the ratings and reviews. So those ratings and reviews have become much more important. And oh, by the way, every grocer in America is rolling out digital fact tags that show the ratings and reviews in the store. So it's already the most important attribute to influencing sales online. It's about to be the most influential attribute for any sales. So lesson one is lean into those objective attributes. Maybe spend a little bit less building your unaided brand recall and build a little bit more having those objective attributes that demonstrate your quality. That's the reactive. The proactive is maybe spend more money making higher quality products that score better, <laughs> right? And so like, Surely I mean, that, not. <laughs> yeah, I know that sounds, that sounds crazy. But, but again, the best way to build a sunscreen brand was to make sure that it had a lovely fragrance and make sure that you had great commercials because those were the only two things a consumer could judge. But now there's an evil group of scientists that publish a website called the Environmental Working Group and they tell the public when your sunscreen doesn't block the sun and is poisonous. So it turns out it's now more beneficial than ever to not make poisonous stuff and to make stuff that actually does what it says it does, right? And so we have to spend more money on that. Fantastic. Now, before we let you go, I do just want to quiz you a little bit on some retail trends in general, because aside from being an expert on data, you're also very plugged into what's happening with retail on the whole. What's exciting you at the moment in terms of retail trends? You talked already a little bit about this idea of the top off trip. Is that one of those concepts that's that's getting you excited or what other trends are you keeping an eye out on at the moment? Yeah, well, there, there's a lot. Overall, what excites me the most is that we are in the first inning of this nine-inning digital transformation, right? And, like, everyone thinks of it as super binary, right? Like, either, oh, my gosh, digital's happening and we're behind. We're at zero and our competitor's at 100. Or we talk to, you know, a bunch of companies that are like, oh, yeah, I remember digital disruption. That was a big thing. Like, we had to launch a website. It was really hard. But <laughs> we're, it's done now. And the, they don't realize how different shopping is going to be in 20 years as as all of this plays out and how early we all are. And to me, what's exciting about that is you you mentioned up front that I'm a fourth generation retailer. My dad could run his retail business very similar to his grandfather and expect similar results. That playbook worked for a long time. But because we've all lived through this very rare disruption, that playbook would utterly fail for me today if I were to take it to any of my clients, right? And so where's the playbook that works? Well, it doesn't exist. We have to write it, right? And so to me, the fun is not being able to go to a talking head and saying, what should I do? The fun is saying, what experiment should I run and how can I learn from them? And then how can I act quickly on the learnings that I acquire? And while it's difficult and it can be frustrating at times, like to me, it's it's wildly economically stimulating. And I, I feel like we're all so lucky to be in this industry when it is so dynamic and changing so rapidly. And so learning about things like absolute value and trying to figure out things like how we get reviews for new products and how we solve the unit economics of digital grocery and, you know, all of these things, you know, make make it exciting for me. And it's it probably reflects poorly on me, but like, this is my job. And then in my spare time, like, it's what I do for fun. So <laughs> I probably should get more multidimensional. <laughs> Not at all. I think probably quite a few of us listening to you are in a similar bait. Anything that you're seeing at the moment in terms of trends or talking points that you think is being overplayed or overhyped? 
Yeah, there are certain topics that I just, I hate. And somehow I keep getting assigned to talk about them, by the way, which is <laughs> extra ironic. So like a perfect example to me is artificial intelligence. The reason it annoys me is because artificial intelligence isn't an outcome, right? Like you can't say, oh, I like this shopping experience because it's artificial intelligence and I don't like this shopping experience because it's not, right? Artificial mm. intelligence is a tactic and it may be a perfectly valid tactic, right? So I'm not saying people shouldn't use it, but you'll never win or lose because you used it or didn't use it and customers will never care whether you used it, right? What they care about is the outcome. So I, I like to joke artificial intelligence kind of like green paint, right? Like Van Gogh can probably do something pretty cool with green paint. I can't. And so you don't want to buy a painting because it has green paint or not. You want to buy a painting because it was done by a really talented person or not, as I point to myself. <laughs> and so, I, you know, artificial intelligence is the overhyped one. A fun hobby I have is every time I get invited to a, a trade show, I quickly uh, search their exhibitor directory for the word artificial intelligence. And on average, about 200 of the 250 exhibitors will now be artificial intelligence companies. I'm staring out the window of my house and I can see an artificial intelligence trash uh, truck picking up the trash and an artificial intelligence landscaping firm mowing my lawn, right? like. It's a little silly overhyped, and maybe that was a long enough rant for your show, but I, I would probably say similar things about something like virtual reality, which tends to get overhyped. Fantastic. Now, we like to finish our episodes by asking our guests to spell out one essential piece of advice for our listeners, and we call this your hashtag 20 second smarts. So, Jason, what is your one essential piece of advice on how to make the most of your data? Yeah. Don't follow best practices or listening to talking heads because they don't exist. The best answers for you are going to be different than anyone else. And so you should use the scientific method to invent experiments on that data and then follow the results of those, those experiments. Fantastic. Before we wrap up, can you just tell our listeners where they can connect with you, watch your content and listen to your podcast? Yeah. So apologies in advance that you probably can't avoid my content. I'm highly overexposed. <laughs> so the easiest way to find me is my online persona is Retail Geek. So you can go to retailgeek.com or quite active on Twitter under Retail Geek. We do have this podcast that's been accidentally successful. My co-host is much smarter than me. So even if you didn't enjoy the show, you probably want to listen to him. It's called The Jason and Scott Show. And for SEO purposes, Scott's parents spelled his name wrong. So he only has one T in Scott. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, my pandemic hobby, while everyone else was baking sourdough, I was making YouTube videos about the disruption of commerce. So you can go to Retail Geek on YouTube and, and listen to me rant some more with prettier backgrounds. Brilliant. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the show and thanks for a brilliant conversation. It's always lovely to chat with you, Julia. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Digital Shelfcast from eFundamentals the only podcast dedicated to helping growth-driven CPGs win online. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and got some useful tips for how to navigate your brand's success on the digital shelf. If your brand faces a particular online challenge, or you want to learn more about leveraging digital shelf analytics to fuel growth, then why not book a free consultation with the eFundamentals team? Simply visit efundamentals.com forward slash podcast and book your free consultation. You'll also find the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, we'd also appreciate it if you could give us a rating and leave a review. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.